It's everyone's worst nightmare. We get out of the current pandemic and then we get hit by another one. How likely is this? I think the chances are very high. Well, it's a prediction is always hard, but the the risk of outbreaks, um, larger outbreaks, is definitely increasing. We hear from two leading scientists on how we can build on the current pandemic response to protect against future risk. There's a lot of work to do. I think we have the opportunity not to have another pandemic, but it's a conscious choice and we have to do the work um, to put the systems in place to choose not to have another pandemic. And that's, that's actually much harder than it sounds. And working internationally will be key. So infectious diseases do not respect borders. So it does not make a whole lot of sense to organise things each country by themselves. Don't worry, it's not all doom and gloom. In fact, the opposite. In the podcast, we look at where we are now and what needs to be put in place, where the money needs to be invested so we can deal with the next outbreak and avoid the devastation of the current one. We'll hear about where the risks will come from and how we can set up early warning systems to try and avoid the devastation of the next pandemic. This is the Pandemic Unmasked podcast and I'm your host, Andy Clark. The podcast is produced by the British Embassy in The Hague, together with Studio Line 14. In each episode, we look at the pandemic from a different perspective and see what lessons we can learn from it for the future. Each time we speak with an expert from the UK and from the Netherlands. In this podcast, the focus is on how we can better be prepared for future pandemics. You'll hear from Carol Mundell, the UK's Chief International Science Envoy at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. She was a former Chief Scientific Advisor to the British Foreign Office too and is currently a member of SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. And our Dutch guest is Marian Koopmans, a Professor in Virology at the Erasmus Medical Centre in the Netherlands. She's also an advisor to the World Health Organization. She was part of the WHO team recently in Wuhan in China, investigating the origins of the current pandemic. First off, why the risk of a new pandemic is rising. Here's Marian Koopmans. Well, everyone knows that the term the global village and, and that's real. So we do see that uh, the world is, is small because of our travel behavior, trade behavior. We do see that population growth and the development of mega cities increases the risk of outbreaks. There's big concentrations of, of people. So the moment you have an infection, that's easily spread. But also, if we think about really new infections, they often come from the animal world. And that animal wildlife is pushed back, pushed uh, aside because of this urban development, because of deforestation. So you get more and more friction at this human-animal interface. So that increases the risk of a spillover. The risk of a disease jumping from animals to people, from what's known as the zoonotic reservoir, is ever-present and increasing, and we also have climate change in the mix. Here's Carol Mundell. 
You know, depending on how humans interact with animals, when we start to encroach on natural habitats, um, we start to lose biodiversity, that whole balance between how we live our human lives in our built environment and how we, we interact with nature. And climate change, of course, is really the, the big um, hidden elephant in the room that we haven't mentioned. We're starting to change our environments in quite a catastrophic way. So we see an intersection of different crises coming forward. We see migration of people, we see people displaced, and we will see that increasing in the future if we don't really tackle climate, the climate emergency. And so that zoonotic reservoir is really um, the boiling pot, if you like, um, for, for viruses, for all sorts of different diseases, actually. All right, so this is all very terrifying, and I promised you it wouldn't all be doom and gloom. So what do we need to focus on to try and head off the next pandemic? The WHO made a research and development blueprint to focus on future threats. This happened in the wake of the Ebola virus outbreak. So there is this list of diseases that we already know that are out there, like Ebola, like Nipah, like the coronaviruses, uh, Lhasa. Um, but there are also, it says, disease X. And disease X is a warning to, to think about how can you prepare, be prepared for any new disease so where you don't know what to look for. Alongside preparing for known threats and developing diagnostics and vaccines for them, working on the unknown threat from a disease X is vital, according to Marianne Koopmans. I think we haven't really picked up on what does disease X mean? What does it mean to be more at a, at a, at a generic level, be prepared? And that um, is, is clearly not, not there. So operationalizing the concept of disease X is crucial. This unknown hidden future threat is something we must prepare for, she says. So what's needed to do this? So what we are now seeing, and I think that's the uh, a bit of danger, is that we now see a push for, okay, let's make vaccines, let's make treatments, let's make Diagnostics. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that there will be investments for a while in, in that direction. But of course, that is investing for things that we now know may be coming. Um, what I think we need to invest also in, in how, so what, what could disease X mean? Where do these, where is the risk for these diseases greatest? Can we maybe predict that a little bit? We have... Uh, uh, examples of outbreaks where we say in retrospect, oh yeah, it's not really a surprise that we see a spillover from wildlife in that region of the world. Or uh, so, so can we use that kind of pattern to start thinking about where are these risks greatest? Um, and can we then maybe develop early warning systems to uh, targeting those regions? Carol Mundell also points to the importance of early warning systems. She says genomic sequencing utilised in tackling the current crisis can play a crucial role. 
As our pandemic um, was taking off in the UK, um, it hit us very quickly, very suddenly. And you'll have seen we had um, high incidence and high death rate. And what we were able to do with the genomic data was go back and understand the very detailed nature of our pandemic. And in fact, although we were looking um, internationally and wondering you know, where the virus was being introduced to the UK, how it was spreading across the UK and what we could do to mitigate that, looking back at the genomic data, we learned three really important things. First of all, 75% of the cases that were introduced to the UK came from travel to our nearest neighbour countries, France, Italy and Spain, where the incidences were also high. The disease was really seeded across the whole of the UK in a very short time window, around about three days. And so those seeds were planted across the UK and then it was those seeds that then then spread, if you like, as people caught the disease, brought it back and started to spread it amongst their families and their communities. That was something that we couldn't have predicted. And the other thing that the genomic sequence showed was that when we went into a hard lockdown, it really worked. So the each time somebody catches the version of the virus, there's a tiny, tiny change in the copy of it. And the scientists were able to see each of those genetic lines literally becoming extinct as people stayed home and didn't transmit the virus. This is the kind of surveillance system that will help you to see if there is an emerging disease in your animal or your farmed population. You'll be able to see very early on if it crosses over the animal-human divide, as well as checking to see whether you know, humans continue to be sick or whether they clear the virus and therefore it's not going to be a pandemic proportion. But having that preparedness beforehand, then being able to decide at what level you set your alert system and helping countries understand that they need to be transparent about those data before it becomes a pandemic, when it then becomes politically also quite charged and people may then feel a little bit cautious about making their data public. We need to make sure that this is a sharing at the scientific level so that countries can take very early measures. So it's data and information and insight is really, really important. So for me, I think these wonderful things that we've set up in this extreme time of crisis, we mustn't lose those. They will be the linchpin of future alert systems so that we have real factual information to know how to respond and to do so quickly. Marianne Copeman stresses the need to move to a catch-all system, to move from testing from a single virus to one that checks for all threats. So we test for viruses, for 100 different viruses, saying, okay, we know this virus is there, we look for this virus. But there's also now methods which allow you to test for anything, any virus, the whole virome. And then you turn the question around, I just test whatever a person carries with them and then ask the question what of that information is relevant for the diagnosis and those kinds of tools actually would make it possible to to have a sensor in the community that allows you to on the background of your routine diagnostics maybe have a have a a system that picks up unusual disease. Think of this sensor as a constant scan of society, where checks can be done during routine diagnoses to set up an early warning system looking for this lurking disease X. A next step can also be setting vaccines for whole families of viruses. If you look at um, emerging infections, many of them are viruses. There have been uh, some studies that started to uh, chart the wildlife virome. So which viruses are out there? And from those studies, what we're seeing is that 
yes, a lot of new viruses are found, but they belong to the same families of viruses. They are variations to viruses we already know. So if that's a theme, then maybe we should start thinking about developing vaccines and diagnostics for whole families of viruses. So for instance, we know that a little bit for flu, um, if we have, we have the seasonal influenza viruses and we have emerging influenza viruses coming from animals. And uh, because of the way that techniques have been developed, uh, labs that can diagnose seasonal viruses can also very often diagnose these rare emerging viruses. So that kind of thinking we could further develop for the relatively limited number of virus families that we think are a risk. What do policymakers need to do then to get this sort of early warning system in place? Well, start by wanting it. <laughs> um, so, And it means rethinking of the way we structure our health uh, surveillance. I think it is about bringing uh, people together that look at things from both the human, the animal and the environmental side and seeing what, what can be developed in that in that combination uh, that can help detect uh, circulation of, of pathogens that you would want to be able to pick up early. Um, and the, the exact focus of that will be different in different parts of the world. But, uh, but the concept in itself is broadly applicable. And if you have regions with very high density of people and animals, uh, for instance, combined, they are at risk for zoonotic diseases. If you have regions where climate change impacts very fast, there you could look for vector-borne pathogens. So the, the concept is... Uh, turning away from individual one-by-one-by-one problem-oriented diagnostics, but investing in something that is catch-all and that serves human, veterinary, and environmental uh, uh, experts. Invest in a catch-all system then, instead of focusing on a single disease approach each time. But wouldn't costs for such an early warning system scanning for new threats be prohibitive? I think the cost is there, but look at the cost of this pandemic <laughs> and, and, you know, assume that at least some of that would have been prevented or picked up earlier or, you know, that that's a, an easy calculation. So, yes, it is uh, not cheap, but if you see, so for instance, what you see now is because there is a new variant or some new variants are uh, uh, appearing of the SARS coronavirus too. Um, now all of a sudden there's a push globally for a lot of genomic sequencing technology. So all countries now are ramping up their ability to sequence these viruses. So you have a patient uh, and they are positive, but now we want to know the exact composition of that virus. It's a new ambition. It's something we've wanted to do for the past 10 years and now all of a sudden it's the demand from politicians this is what we want well thank you once you have that technology you can do that catch all you can make that catch all 
So right now it's being used just for this one virus. But if you have that up and running, you can use that for any virus out there. So that's the start of it. And this is expensive, yes, particularly if you only use it for one topic, but it becomes incrementally less expensive if you can use it for many different uh, uh, topics. So an early warning system is crucial when it comes to heading off the potential threat of new pandemics. Beyond the devastating loss of life and debilitating illness, the pandemic has of course had a huge societal impact around the world. I asked both scientists to share a personal story which really brought this aspect of the crisis home to them. I've, I've considered myself to have been very lucky so far, so I've, we've been fortunate in my family not to have had, lost anybody to, to the virus. I think what, what really brought it home to me was a family funeral um, that we had on Zoom in some ways, this now almost has become normalised in our lives that we stay in lockdown, we stay home if we can. Um, and, you know, to, to do a funeral funeral on Zoom, we lost a family member, not to COVID, but it was such a surreal experience. Um, and I think for me, although I was working in government um, on the COVID situation, I was a I'm a participant in SAGE, that was a very personal thing. And it was such a, a difficult thing for the, the small number of family members who could be there in person and everybody else doing this, this screen life. Um, so I think that for me really brought the, the personal side of it home to me, that we can't go through those normal rituals that we, even at times of sadness and tragedy, we take for granted that we've lost that. Well, I was in an interview last week with a girl who was invited because she's doing a blog and she has leukemia. And she was diagnosed or re-diagnosed not so long ago. Uh, knowing she's in her last year and this is her last year. So she was talking about that and about, um, you know, the impact that this has on young people. Uh, and she's become a bit of a, uh, internet icon because of her uh, openness. Uh, but it was also very, you know, I, I, I thought it was a very touching uh, example of how, what impact this has. Uh, this was a very, very uh, tragic story, but just looking at the impact it has on, on youth, uh, we see high levels of, of um, depression in, in young individuals. Right now in our country, we are seeing um, riots uh, with many young people. Um, so I think the that that to me is uh, you know it's it's quite extreme the impact uh, of this pandemic another striking element in dealing with the societal impact of the pandemic is the role of social media i asked carol mundell if there was a particular piece of fake news which had grabbed her attention there are lots of bits of fake news that make me make me grind my teeth um I think possibly the the most entertaining. It's not entertaining, but you know the the most uh, stark one was if you take the um, Oxford vaccine, you'll turn into a monkey. Right, as simple as that. There was a picture of a monkey and a big syringe. Um, that was something that I I saw circulating, which of course is utter nonsense. Um, and 
should be clearly obvious to everybody that it's fake. Lots of other pieces like, you know, this is just a small flu. Obviously, this is absolutely not a small flu. Um, the messaging that it will all go away by itself will have a wave and it will magically disappear. You know, this is not, you know, a magical thing that comes in from outside. It's not an alien virus that has landed and will run around and go away again. You know, it's it's a microorganism. We understand how microorganisms work. You know, it, it floats in the air. It sits on our surfaces. We inhale it, we absorb it into our body and then we become a human virus factory and we spread it to others. It's, it's actually very, very simple. But it's been surprising that that's not sometimes the messaging that's come through and disinformation seems plausible, even though the, the monkey syringe <laughs> to me doesn't sound plausible. Actually, when it is um, put out, particularly on social media, um, it seems very, very plausible and it's very dangerous um, because people really are desperate for information, they're desperate for accurate information and um, when it's pushed as disinformation rather than misunderstanding and misinformation is different to deliberately misleading people. Um, and it seems very plausible and then people latch onto it and it affects their behaviours. And of course, it's very dangerous. Um, so I, I think it's, it's pretty nefarious. Marianne Koopmans has become somewhat of a celebrity in the Netherlands, appearing on TV almost daily at the start of the pandemic. This level of exposure has meant that she's been singled out by virus deniers on social media. Oh well, um, not there's mostly the tone is not that friendly, <laughs> varying from uh, uh, the witch to we're gonna go uh, to you know there will be Nuremberg trials and uh, the truth will be told and um, you know that kind of uh, nice uh, interaction. Yeah, so quite quite vocal at, at times, quite aggressive at times. Um, yeah, I try to ignore it. But on the other hand, I also think it is sort of scientifically and so societally, I think it's something we have to learn how to deal with. You know, it's, it's actually not acceptable in the right now. So since the um, start of the curfew in our country as part of the step up in, in measures, we have these riots that are, you know, the invitations spread through social media that target youth. And and um, I, I don't think we know how to deal with that. So, and that's something that we need to think about, learn. Can more be done then to tackle disinformation online? I think there is more that can be can be done and I know that you know governments around the world are working on this and speaking to the the social media companies I think it's always a balance um, between going too far and stifling you know free speech and the the, the wonderful thing about the internet is it it, it is very um, democratic it is very open we can all use it to communicate and I think particularly at times of crisis like this communication is very important um, but it is a it is a constant battle and I know many of those companies are you know working really Really hard to try to understand what is, you know, deliberate disinformation, and then put warnings on it so people can really understand that this is not accurate. Um, I think, you know, deleting it all probably is a you're on a losing battle if you try to do that. So a lot of it is about educating people and helping people understand where to go for robust and trustworthy information um, so that they can equip themselves because everybody wants information. There is an appetite for that information. How do we help them find the right information that will give them the accurate story and that they can then use to, to protect themselves? 
Both scientists are clear that the role of social media is massive and that more attention needs to be spent on it. So, what's the final thought then from our two scientists for the decision makers who are considering future threats? Uh, stop and think before investing the big bucks in future preparedness. Because otherwise it would probably go to the obvious things rather than the bigger picture thinking things. And um, the second element is don't do it by nation, do it by region, by continent. It really needs to be because the the because of all this connectedness, this is not a national or regional uh, issue. This is really something that, that needs collaboration. Well, I guess now we're dealing with this pandemic. Um, I think, you know, the, the international surveillance system, we have a lot of the pieces of that jigsaw in place. I think using the urgency of this pandemic to make sure that we have both the political will and the investment in those systems so that we don't think when we solve this pandemic, the crisis is over and we can go back to the way we were before. I think we have to really harness this crisis and make sure that we use that to embed the good practices that we know we need in the future and not ever have to go through this kind of thing again. So we have to find other ways. But yeah, it's, I don't believe it is all doom and gloom. I mean, I have, to, I have to say, as a scientist, I feel quite inspired and uplifting when I get data and information, almost, you know, stare into the abyss, see what the truth is, and then do something about it. So I think that enables us, um, if we have understanding, we can then decide what we do about it. We have lots of clever people who will be able to, you know, design solutions, but we have to have a will to do that. Face it and then do something about it, I think would be my uplifting message in times of doom and gloom. You've been listening to the Pandemic Unmasked podcast, produced by the British Embassy in The Hague and Studio Line 14. Thanks to our two speakers today, you heard from Carol Mundell, the UK's Chief International Science Envoy at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and she's also a member of SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. We also heard from Marian Koopmans, a professor in virology at the Erasmus Medical Centre in the Netherlands and an advisor to the World Health Organization. She was part of the WHO team recently in Wuhan in China, investigating the origins of the current pandemic. I actually spoke to her whilst she was in a 14-day quarantine period ahead of those investigations starting. In the podcast, Professor Koopmans mentions rioting in the Netherlands. There were several nights of rioting when a curfew was introduced on the 23rd of January. Rioting is though not ongoing and the streets of the Netherlands have since been quiet. We'd love to generate discussion on the ideas you've heard in this podcast, so please share it in your network. And if you want to react to anything you've heard, then get in touch. You can find us on social media under UK in NL. That's UK in NL. From me, Andy Clark, thanks for listening. <laughs>